Amen. You may be seated. And that's exactly what we've come to do, is to worship our holy God. Now, there's a few different ways we do that. We do that through singing. We do that through prayer. We do that through even fellowship. Did you know that you're worshiping God when you're greeting one another, caring for one another, getting to know one another? That is part of our worship. Well, now we come to the study of the Word. If you don't have a sermon outline, I want to ask you to raise your hand. We have men that are ready to give them to you, so uh, just lift your hand and they will get you one. If you're new to us, we want you to know that there's always a sermon outline um, online. You can go home and download it and see it. There's one there with answers and there's another one there with blanks. Um, But uh, if you're even clicking online right now, you're here this morning, you can go to our website and see the outline there. The way we study the Bible, it's very helpful to have the outline. And uh, this morning, you're also going to need to have your Bible open to the book of Micah. So go ahead and go to the table of contents if you need to do that still. Um, Go back there and find it. And uh, maybe you can start memorizing those minor prophets that are back there end your, end your uh, Old Testament and be able to find it very quickly. But this morning we come to Micah, and we are in chapter 4. Let's remember a little bit about this prophecy. Now, remember with me that there are some that are hearing these, these messages for the very first time, or this is their first message in Micah, so we want to review to help you be up to speed. But if you've been with us through every single one of them, As we go back and we look, I hope that you're really allowing the message of Micah to sink into your mind and your heart. We've said that there's there's three prophecy cycles in this little tiny book, and these three prophecy cycles have two very important components. And so there's six of these, but but there's two that keep oscillating um, in each one of the prophecy cycles. Two key words. Now, this is your quiz. Hopefully, you're going to get it this time. We've done this for about four Sundays. We're going to do it again right now. If you remember, those prophecy cycles, just fill them in right there. There's two key parts to each one of them. And this is important because as we look at books of the Bible, we need to see how they fit into God's grand message. And not only his grand message, but as we see this morning, his grand plan. And so the first element that we've recognized, that we've acknowledged here in the book of Micah is what? The first part of each one of these is what? Very good, judgment. The first one is judgment. Maybe that reminds you of what the second one is. In each one of these, we see that God is judging a sinful people. And he brings about his judgment in spoken word through the prophet Micah. And then events start happening that are bringing his judgment upon their breaking of the covenant with him. But not only do we see judgment in these, but we also see what? Very good, mercy. God's judgment comes, but his mercy comes to his people. And this is very, very important. Notice the setting here is with me is there's the people of Israel are in rebellion and they have sinned against God. First cycle is destruction and regathering. Do you see those two words there? Destruction and regathering. Above destruction, put J for judgment. Above regathering, put mercy. He, he destroys, but then he comes back and he gathers. We've already studied that. Second cycle, there is doom and deliverance. J over doom, put an M over deliverance. We see he is, his mercy is here. And notice there under the second one that we are in that second, that second deliverance word there for the second Sunday. So deliverance through the coming kingdom. 
And this is deliverance through his grand plan. We see that. And then as the Sundays unfold before us, we'll go to the third cycle, which is denunciation and salvation. So whenever somebody says to you, it's kind of like this. I've often heard people say, you know the church, they're always talking about money. The church is just always, you know, they, they always want your man. That's all they talk about. You know, that's a very common thing for people to say that are looking for an excuse not to be involved in a church. Now, it's true. There's some churches that maybe that's, they really are money-driven, and there really are some problems with that. But a true church should teach stewardship on a regular basis. There's no doubt about that. I remember my first two years, I didn't preach very much on stewardship, not very much at all. In fact, I preached about 102 or 103 sermons with, with only two of those having anything to do with finances. And um, I, I, I just, I remember that you couldn't make that accusation. I would still hear it every now and then. And I would say, oh, really, you must not come to our church very often. Um, we, we really didn't pound on that a lot. Well, there's a similar thing that often is said about the Old Testament. Oh, the Old Testament's just about judgment. It's just about judgment. I want you to recognize that that's not true. God's judgment is definitely in the Old Testament. Let me tell you, it's in the New Testament too. Read Jesus' words. He, He makes very clear that the wicked will perish and the righteous by faith will flourish. And so, in this Old Testament passage, yes, we see His judgment, but we also see His mercy. Very important for us. Notice there at the bottom of the the review, notice the judgment prophecies are intended to lead God's people, His true people, to repentance. In every cycle, God's mercy prevails for his people in and over his judgment. And we're going to see that exactly again this morning. So this morning we come to um, just kind of recognize this. I want you to notice last week we looked at all of these troubles that are on our life. This is all part of the troubles of our sin. You remember this? Remember we made this list? I made this list. And what did we say over the top of it? Hope. We said The message of the Bible is a message of hope over everything that is broken, over everything that is wrong, over all of the pain and the suffering. God's message is a message of hope. And it's not just for the nation of Israel. And it's not just for people of one nation state or something like that. It is the nation's hope. It is for every nation and that every nation's hope is found in Jesus. And the Bible tells us that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be there before the throne of God. And so this is the hope of God, that he brings salvation to his people. Now, we're going to also see this morning his grand plan. And that's what we see. And we, we see this exactly in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Micah chapter 4. I want you to notice this. Before we really um, launch into this, I want to run through a bit of systematic theology um, to help you just kind of understand how this works. Um, and these, there's many different ways you could say this. There's many different ways we could run through this. But this is just this is one way to do it. And I want you to see this. How does the message of Micah fit into God's grand plan? How does the message of Micah fit into 
God's grand plan. I want you to see this. First of all, we see that the message of Michael, you know, because we've said creation, fall, redemption, glory. So the message of Micah in God's grand plan is this. Number one, creator God is perfect in holiness. And this means he has no sin. So if we're going to see his grand plan, we must first understand that he is perfect in his holiness. Number two, all of humanity has sinned against God and his righteousness is therefore condemned them to be cut off from God. In fact, that's exactly what the book of Isaiah says, for your sins have cut you off from God. Everyone has done what is right in his own eyes. We see that for the wages of sin is death, that we are cut off from God. But look at number three. But God has had a grand plan from before the foundation of the world. This is the message of the Bible. It's the message of his redemption. And notice how it began. He, he chooses, among other things that he did, he chose a special nation to be different from the rest. And he called them, to, to, he called them his own, and through them he would show his love to the world. Now that is when we see God's chosen people being brought out from Abram and raising them up as a nation. God has said, there are many nations of the earth, there are many people groups of the earth, but this one is simply the one that I chose. They weren't the biggest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't the most powerful, but they were just simply the ones I chose. And so he chooses, and he chooses to come and to bring salvation to the world through them. It's an important part of understanding. Some, some people say, I've grown up all my life, never understood the chosen nation of Israel. Don't really, you know, nobody's ever explained that to me. Well, as we start to look and we start to see, I want you to see very briefly here how that fits in. Notice this, letter B. His, he established a covenant relationship with his nation. They broke the covenant but he keeps the covenant. So we start to see that even with a favored group, they still don't get it right. They don't, even when, when they're treated as God's own, they still rebel against God. Let her see. All of his favored nation turn away from him despite all of his blessings. And this doesn't happen once. This happens over and over and over again. They go to, from obedience to disobedience, from obedience to disobedience, from worshiping God to worshiping other gods, from worshiping God to worshiping other gods, even after he's delivered them from their oppressors, even after he has fed them, even after he has cared for them, even after he has given them good leaders. They, they keep, seem to just keep rebelling and breaking the covenant. But God always keeps his covenant with them. Look at letter D. God brings judgment upon his favored nation. His judgment reveals two key things. It reveals his holiness. It helps them see that he's a holy God and that they are not. It helps them see their sinfulness. 
And so when we read the judgments of the Old Testament, as you are a student of the Bible and you start to pick up on how God is working, I want you to start to see that God's judgment, part of the reason that we see it is so that we can see that he truly is a holy and righteous God and that we are not. You see, most of this favored nation reject him forever. A few of them repent and return to him in faith. Jesus would even give um, words to this, and, and he, would, he would speak of this. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those who go by the wide road. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. That was true in the Old Testament, and that's true in the New Testament. We see that God is about keeping his covenant, keeping his promise to those who are among his people. And how do you become part of his people? You become part of his people by faith. It was by faith that Abraham pleased God. Notice letter E. God in his amazing grace. John Newton called it right when he wrote the hymn. God in his amazing grace saves and calls his true people to himself. This is part of the glory of what he does. He, he calls them to himself. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit calls them. Notice letter F. His true people hear his call, repent, and believe. If you want to know whether someone is really a Christian, they've They've heard the gospel, they repent, and they believe. And that word believe means that you come to accept who he is as Messiah and King, that he is the ruler of your life. He reigns over your life. That's what it means to truly to receive him, to believe in his name. And then letter G, those who believe do so because they have been given the gift of faith. You see, salvation is of God. It comes from God. It's not from us. And this passage that we're going to study this morning, again, helps us to see that. If you would, flip the page and let's look and let's see the passage. I'm going to read it and then we're going to work our way through it very quickly. I believe you're going to be really blessed this morning as you see this glorious hope for a sinful people. Look at verse 6 there in the box on the page. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Look at verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. What does that mean? We're going to look at that in just a minute. Look at verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? What pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you 
saying, let her be defiled and let, her eye, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his what? His plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves. What is a sheaf? We're going to look at that. To the threshing floor. Look at verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, and they shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What we see in this, over and over and over again, is a message of hope. Over and over again, we see that God is bringing hope to a fallen people. Notice in verses 6 and 7, it starts off with that phrase, in that day. Now, I ask you to turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 4, and notice in Micah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, in that day. Well, what day is it talking about? Go back to chapter 4 and verse 1. Look at verse 1, and here's where our key is. It shall come to pass in the, what? In the latter days. You remember last Sunday we looked at this beautiful climax in, this, in, in human history when eventually the kingdom will reign, the kingdom of God will reign over a sinful world and there will be a completely renewed beauty and renewed reign of God over all things. And that's part of what we see here is that this is pointing to that coming day, the days of the latter days. The end of this moment, look what it says in verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Now, look at verse 6 and 7 over to the right. For his true people, God's righteous judgment results in his gracious restoration. Now, we need to see verse 6 and see what we mean, what, what, what it's meaning here about his righteous judgment. Look at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble, and we've made it bold here, the lame, and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom what? I have afflicted. Now, this is important to us because in our present day and time, there are very wrong perceptions of God that would assume that, well, God would, would never afflict us. Anything that bad happens to you, that's from Satan. And anything good that happens to you, that's from God. Now, I, I would simply disagree with the idea of what is good and what is bad. Because sometimes the things that we perceive as very bad are actually very good. And God is working in ways that, man, they go against our flesh. They're painful. They hurt. And you know what? They often don't make sense to us. And so we often assume that very many different things that we can assume at that point. But well, maybe this is, I'm I'm paying for something that I've done wrong, or this is this is because of somebody else, or or Satan is against me. Well, To some degree, all of those things can be true. We can suffer because of our own sin. But we know that in our condition, that we see that God is still working, bringing about not only his judgment upon the earth, but he is working to bring us in mercy to himself. 
So he says, in those whom I have afflicted, in the lame I will make, look what it says there, verse 7, in the lame I will make the remnant. That word remnant is really important because this is the true people of God. This is that glorious red thread, crimson thread that winds through the history of Israel that is God's true people. And his true people, they don't escape the judgment that is bringing them to God. They escape the judgment, ultimately, that would cut them off from God. So here we see that God is bringing judgment in order to bring his people to himself. So we've said that in that day, chapter 4, verse 1, it's the last days. The big picture is that God is going to come. And this is a throwback to Genesis 32. And just put out there to the side, homework, Genesis 32. Okay? Just above that, Genesis 32. And here's what you need to do. You need to this afternoon, it's going to be raining, it's going to be storming, everything on TV is horrible, so just go home and read the precious eternal word of God, okay, and see where this comes from, okay? You'll see that Micah is linked very beautifully to what God was doing way back in Genesis with Jacob, and read, put out there, chapter 24, 25, 26, 27, all the way to 32. Read the story of Isaac and read the story of Jacob and Esau. And you will remember that Jacob, son of Isaac, he swindles out his brother from the birthright. Esau comes in, he's hungry, he sells the birthright to his brother Jacob, and then Jacob has to somehow get their older father, who's blind and really going um, uh, into his grave, he, he has to get him to give him the birthright, birthright. And so Jacob deceives Isaac with the help of his mother. And we see this, that, that Jacob's own name means deceiver. But then we fast forward in his life through many difficulties and through the struggle with his brother. And then as God is moving he and his family on to another place, there is a very particular night, and we see that in Genesis 32, where Jacob is there and he's camping alone. His family is on the other side of the river, and he is alone, and a mysterious man comes and wrestles with him until dawn. Toward the end of that account, you come to see that the one who comes to wrestle with Jacob until dawn is God. And God afflicts him. God touches his hip so that forever from there, Jacob walks with a limp. And God had a purpose in what he was doing in order for Jacob to look to God and to trust in God as he has struggled with God. And we see that God was bringing Jacob to a greater faith. And so God, the name Israel, God's, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He says, you will no longer be called Jacob, you will be called Israel. And the word Israel means God contends, God wrestles, maybe even God afflicts. 
And so as we see the whole nation of Israel and their struggle, that would be very, very representative of the people of Israel. That God works through all of the struggles. And listen to this, he even brings the Messiah through the struggling nation. You see, my friends, God works through judgment to bring about his salvation in a fallen world. Instead of constantly resisting it, instead of constantly thinking ill of God, what we should do is study what his word really says about pain and suffering and what his word really says about the difficulties and to begin to grow in faith, begin to not impugn him, but to regard him and to trust him. I believe that that's what true Christians do. True Christians grow to understand that he is working through the hardships of this life, and he is working to bring us not only to him in faith, but to also sanctify him, sanctify us in his truth. So notice there with me in verse 7, in the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth, and look what it says, and forevermore. You remember last week we were talking about how his glory is going to be known and his kingdom is going to reign forever. This is talking about the glorious salvation of God ultimately. This is talking about not only the already, but also the what? The not yet. So this is a beautiful picture, friends, of what God is doing and how he's working. And Micah is telling us how God works in this. Look at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now what does all this mean? Verse 8, you know, remember with me, uh, before, in chapter 3, we're reading, we're reading that the Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. But look what God is going to do. Verse 8, the destroyed will be raised up as an impenetrable fortress. Do you see that? The destroyed are going to be raised up. Look at verse 8. Oh, tower. That word tower, um, that, that's a very, very important word in the Old Testament. Um, in villages all around outside of Jerusalem, um, namely, you would, you would have towers, and it would be part of, part of a little a township that would be right there. And when an enemy was coming, the people could see the enemy coming, or word would come, oh, wow, bad people are coming, let's run. And they would run to the walled city, and they would run to the tower. The tower was the, the fortified place. It was the fortress. And they could run in and close the door, and they probably prepared to defend the tower from above. And, and there, so a tower is a fortress, a citadel. It's a strong place. It's a place that can't be taken, and that's the idea that we see here. For you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. God brings his salvation and he comes and makes us no longer vulnerable. And it's very interesting to me. Look in the middle of verse 8 what it says. It says, to you shall it come. You see, this tower that God raises up, it is a gift. It's not because of their might. It's not because of their work. It's not because of their ingenuity. It is God's gift to them. 
And friends, that's the way it is with our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, look what it says. Let's read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, or, or just 2, 8. It's on the screen in front of you. Everybody clear your voice. Go ahead. <clears throat> you ready? Read over your mask. You got to read louder than your mask. I mean, don't take your mask off. Read louder over, you know, through your mask. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the, it's the gift of God. You see, that's what Micah ultimately is showing us, is that it, this, this tower that God raises up to you, this salvation that he makes of you, is a gift. To you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. So he's going to restore, put above that, restoration, the former dominion and the kingship of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now look at 9 and 10 and verses 11 through 13. Do you see my brackets over there on the left-hand side? The reason there's a bracket there is because 9 and 10 are very similar. You remember with me that this is Hebrew poetry, and there's, there's about a, a hundred thousand other things we could point out about these passages and these verses. I mean, it's just filled with glory, filled with goodness. There's, there's so much more here, but I just want to point out to you a couple of things here that help you start to see the richness of God's Word and the richness of Hebrew poetry here and how God would use it. In verses 9 and 10, it's, it's somewhat of a, of a similar, um, not just rhyme, but a similar theme in structure and in statement as 10, or excuse me, 11, 12, and 13. You remember with me that the verses came much later. They were, they were only added to our text um, about 1,200 years ago um, for many centuries. In fact, millennia, there were no numbers next to the text. It simply was, was poetry of each one of the letters and so forth, but this greatly helps us be able to study. Look at verse 10, or 9 and 10. You see the word now. And then look down at verse 11. How does it start? Now. Look at verse 10. You see, O daughter of Zion. Look down in verse 13. What do you see? O daughter of Zion. There's a, there's a way in which this works that is together. Look at verse 10 where you see a command. Do you see the command in verse 10? Writhe and groan. Now those are two very difficult words. When you're walking through the house in the middle of the night and someone moved one of the pieces of furniture and you're walking along and you know your house and your pinky toe catches the edge of that chair that someone left out and what happens after that? You're writhing in pain. I mean, similar to two weeks ago, we talked about the body as a whole body. The hand is not, you know, the hand cannot say I'm not connected to the foot. You know, the whole body. When, when you hit that toe and you hear snap or whatever, and there's tremendous pain, the rest of the body gets engaged, right? Other leg takes over, hand reaches out. You go sit down, you find the couch. You, I mean, every, every part of the body is responding to the pain, right? It, it shows you real quick the foot is connected to you. Now, the message two weeks ago was that's how it's supposed to be for all of us. Then in the church family, when one hurts, we all hurt. When one is rejoicing, we all rejoice. When one is sinning, we all, we're all are concerned. 
We're struggling together. Well, here we see this idea of writhing, pain. And, and we see that the Bible is, is so honest that even in God's judgment, sometimes we have great pain. We live in a fallen world, and he's saving us out of that fallen world. And even, you know, what would it be like if as soon as you pray to receive Christ, you have no more pain and no more suffering in your life at all? How would you even have faith if it was that automatic and that clear? But because we still live in a fallen world, and he has us on this journey of trusting him more and more, and Hebrews says... It is by faith that we please him, that we're growing in faith, that we're growing in understanding who he is. We're growing in loving him by faith. That's part of what we see, that that God is working through the struggle and through the trouble to not only save us, but to sanctify us, to make him more like him. So in verse 10, we see writhe and groan, and then look in verse 13, it's different. It's not you're just going to struggle and you're going you're to have pain in this. But look what it says. What does it say in verse 13? What's underlined? Arise and thresh. Well, let's make sense of 9 through 13 real quick. Verses 9 and 10 have to do with freedom. You, you go from, excuse me, from captivity to freedom. Fill that in. You go from captivity to freedom. That's what we're going to see in verse 9 and 10. They're going from being a nation in captivity with all of the troubles of that to they're going to be free. But then look at verses 11 and 13. Skip down to 11 and 13. They're going from being beaten to victory. So they go from being crushed and having the vultures circle around of of their in their defeat and other nations coming and looking at them and thinking, yeah, we'll finish them off. They go from beaten to to victory. Now let's look and see this. Look at verse 9. Look what it says. Now, why do you cry aloud, there is no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. You see, the idea here is is that you're going to leave your wonderful safe home, and you're going to be carried away in God's judgment of your sin. You're going to be carried away to Babylon. You're going to be slaved. But there shall you be rescued. Can you put a big circle around that last section in verse 10 where it says, there shall you be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. You see, this is the glorious statement of hope. This is the mercy of God. This is the rescue out of the judgment. Now in this, notice here, we see the reality of suffering. Fill this in. We see the reality of suffering from sin. That that is what happens in this life. But we also see the rescue of God from sin and from suffering. God comes in his grace and rescues us. Now, the great agony of judgment, fill this in, the great agony of judgment, this writhing and this pain of judgment results in two things. The first bullet point there is correction. This is correction toward righteousness. Do you remember with me that whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens, he disciplines, he trains. 
He corrects them, and sometimes the correction is painful, right? But notice this, the correction toward righteousness. And not only does great agony of judgment result in correction, but it also results in this, appreciation of mercy. You see, if, if we didn't have a full understanding of the wrath of God and the condemnation of God and the judgment of God against sin, then when we're saved from that wrath, we wouldn't have a great appreciation from what we've been saved from. This is why Christians need to study the whole message of the Bible and see that God is working through all of His ways to bring about His grand plan, and His grand plan is good. Several years ago, I came upon Psalm 119, and this was probably 20 years ago I made this discovery. I, I had never heard anybody talk about this, had never seen it. This is probably about the fourth time that I've pointed this out to you. If you have a Bible that you've had for the last four or five years, you probably are about to see some places where I've touched on this before. But can everybody turn to Psalm 119? Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 is about the Word of God. It's all about the laws, the statutes, the truths, the commandments of God. And it's about us interacting with that truth. And it's about our struggle of faith to, to trust God and to believe God and listen to obey God. And in Psalm 119, around in verse 50, I started noticing something. Does anybody have some of these verses marked? Does anybody have verse 50 marked in your Bible? I, I want to encourage you, maybe put a little circle around verse 50. Because these are very interesting verses. Look at verse 50. It says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise does what? Gives me life. So I'm, I'm being afflicted. I'm going through hardships. I'm living in a fallen world. And boy, this is a moment where it hurts. But in that moment of hurt, whether it's cancer, car wreck, broken relationship, something no fault of my own or completely fault of my own, whatever it is, through the hardship and through the pain here, verse 50 says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Your promise. This is the word of God. It's his words. You see, Psalm 119 is all about his words. That's the promise. His words. Look at the next one there in verse 67. Go down to verse 16. Put a little circle around the verse number 67. Now, this is the one that originally alerted me to this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now what? I keep your word. Wow. That's a powerful concept. That the affliction causes me to realize something's wrong. The pain alerts me that something's wrong. And so I look to God. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, now some people, when they're afflicted, they don't learn his statutes. When the pain comes, they hate God. When the pain comes, they hate someone else. Or when the pain comes, they hate themselves. None of those are good solutions. When the pain comes, 
We need to look to God. This is what he does. This is how he works through a fallen world. This is how he works through the pain to bring his children to himself. Many of you were saved because of pain in your life. Many years ago, Mike Johnson was a member of this church, and he worked for Seaboard Coastline Railroad, and he was a conductor. And one night, he was running his train right down through Dade County here, and there was something wrong with the system, and his train was on path to collide with another train, and he could tell there's no way we're going to stop. He climbed out of the engine that, excuse me, he was, he was on another car for some reason. He climbed out of the car that he was in, and he got in an empty gra- uh, gravel carrier, and he braced himself up against the side of the gravel carrier so that when the impact hit, it would, he, he wouldn't be jolted. He would just, he would go with the train. Well, the thing went over and he was thrown. He remembers, he said, I, could, I can see it like yesterday. I flew through the air and was thrown, fl- excuse me, thrown free from the crashing train, landed off in the side of the, of the tracks, broke his arm, broke his leg, and he survived it. And my dad went to see him the next day. Somehow we heard about it. Somehow he was connected to someone here in the church. And Mike prayed to receive Christ the next day after the train wreck and walked with the Lord. Today, one of his sons is a missionary with the IMB. Grew up in this church. Friends, Mike would tell you, well, through the great hardship. Now, Mike had other struggles later in his life, as we all do. All of his problems didn't go away. There were, there were great struggles and pains and difficulties in his life. But he would say, there's no doubt about it. God brought me to himself through a train wreck. Yeah, you got a train wreck. For some of you, it was drugs or alcohol. For there, others of you, it was a divorce. For some of you, it was the loss of a child. For others of you, it was losing your job. For some of you, it was your mother-in-law coming to live with you. I know, I know of a couple of people in our church, a mother-in-law came to live with them, and they became Christians because a mother-in-law <laughs> came to live with them. I'm not going to tell exactly how that worked out, but God works through blessings, and he works through pain. I don't want you to miss these. Look at 75. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And look at this one. At the end of verse 75, what does it say? And that in faithfulness you have what? Afflicted me. Verse 107. Skip down to 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Friends, when you're in pain, when you're struggling, you run to the Word of God. You stay in the Word of God. You rest in the Word of God. Look at verse 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. You see, His Word, your commandments are my delight. May we have a strong theology of suffering. 
May we reject prosperity gospel that says if you're suffering, it's your fault or someone else's fault. Or maybe even, you know, you don't have enough faith. My friends, that is a lie from the pit. The truth of the matter is, is that God is working through all of the good times and all of the bad for his true people. And very often, he's even bringing his true people to himself, perhaps for the first time. They don't even realize that from before the foundation of the world, he had a plan. But now, through the trouble, they are hearing his voice. And they're coming to know that he is the one who rescued. And so when you read verse 9, 10, again, you start to see it in a different way. Look what it says in verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Now, there's two different ways to look at this. It can either be the king being capital K, as in God himself, where Micah is saying to the people, do you not realize that God is with you? Do you not realize that your count, are you thinking that your counselor died? Are you thinking that God has died? Or it could be the more uh, sarcastic way that, that sometimes we do see in Old Testament prophecy where you say, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? And the idea is, oh, your king let you down? Your counselor let you down? We see that. We see that that's clearly true, that they had bad kings. They had bad counselors. They had bad priests that were stealing land and, and living off the pavement. We, we saw their bad. So either way you look at it, you can start to see that the call is to recognize that God is at work. Look what it says. That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Look at verse 10. Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out and from the city and will dwell in an open country and you shall go into Babylon. There's going to be trouble. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Have you ever heard somebody ask, how you doing? And the brother looks at you and says, better than I deserve. There's been many times when I've heard brothers or sisters say that. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. We have one or two guys, that's, that's the only way they respond. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. And you know, here's part of the picture. We start to see that God in his mercy and his grace gives us far better than we deserve. And it's even sometimes the difficulties of his life that help us to see that. Look at verse 11 through 13. We called this one from what to what? From, from beaten to victory or from defeat to victory. Look at verse 11. Let's read it. Look at verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you. So the nations have assembled around. They're circled around God's people and saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. The idea is we're going in for their capital city. Let you guys be trampled. We're going to get Jerusalem. We're going to take what your heart is, is centered on. Look at verse 12. <laughs> but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. 
Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn an iron, make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brawn, and you shall beat in many in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What does this mean? Well, here's the first part. The wicked gang up on the righteous. That's what you see in verse 11. They're ganging up on the righteous. But the wicked are clueless of what is about to happen to them. And this is maybe the wicked of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but this could also be the wicked within the nation of Israel that are not truly God's people, those who have rejected the covenant and broken it. But it's very interesting that in verse 12, we see that God has a grand plan. And his grand plan, look what it says there, they do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves. Now, there's three key words here, sheaves, threshing floor, and chaff. And I'm going to teach you something that's really cool, and this is still happening around the world. First of all, let's look at some, uh, this, this thing. That, how many of you have had bread in the last 24 hours of some sort? Unless you're on this other diet. Brian McCluskey hasn't had bread today probably, but most of us probably have had bread of some sort. It grows in a wheat plant, and that wheat plant has a stalk, and then it has this whole thing that is called the head of the wheat, and the head of the wheat has several aspects to it. It has these, um, uh, this kernel that is inside, that's what you want, and it has a covering around the kernel, and sometimes the covering around the kernel is quite attached to it. It's hard to get the covering around the kernel to be separated from the kernel itself. You don't want the covering around the kernel in your bread. It's going to get hung up in your teeth, right? It's, it's, not, it's not going to cook right. It's not going to digest right. You want that kernel because that's going to get ground down. And in fact, this, this picture kind of has the picture. Here it is coming out of the field. What you want are those kernels that are underneath those. And what are you going to do with those kernels? You're going to grind them up. And what are you going to have? Flour. For those of you who don't understand that yet, that's where it actually comes from, and we still have to actually grow the physical plant. We don't have a Star Trek you know, replicator that just makes it. So here we go. There are sheaves of wheat. That's bundles of wheat. Well, in the bundle of wheat, you have the stalk, you have the kernel, um, and, which is what you want, and you also have all these other components that you don't want. And so what we see in this passage is, notice what it says here in verse verse 12, it says, they don't know the Lord's plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves. You see, the sheaves have what you want, and it also has what you don't want. And he's gathered them as sheaves, and they're going to the threshing floor. Now, what is the threshing floor? I want you to see a picture of the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where you bring in those sheaves of wheat you lay them down on a hardened surface, and then you do whatever it takes to pound them enough in large volume to where you break away the kernels of wheat from the thin little covers that hold them. And so there's several different ways that you would do this. You, sometimes you run, cat, you run oxen over them, very heavy. You think about all of the weight of a 1,800-pound ox or an 1,800-pound bull, and all of that weight on those hooves, and they're pounding on the straw, and they're pounding on the chaff that is there, and they're pounding 
on the, the kernels, and it's breaking it up. It's breaking it up. It's making it where it's separated. And then after you break it all up, you scoop it up, and you throw into the air all that is there while the wind is blowing, and the density of the kernel of the grain caused the grain to come right back down, and everything else gets blown away. So it's Psalm chapter 1 and verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so when we see God's plan, the worthless husk of it all is being blown away. Now what we see is that God has a plan. God is bringing in the sheaves, and within the sheaves there's the true people of God, and there's the things that, there's the wicked that are not the true people of God. And God is going to thresh them out. He's going to separate that which is his grand value from that which is not. Look at what it says in verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. You see, that's the enemies. They don't understand what's about to happen. They don't understand that by standing against God, they're about to be separated from the people of God. And they are going to be judged eternally, separated from God. But God is going to have his produce. God is going to have his precious people. And they will be retained. Look what it says in verse 13. And so the people of God are called to come and join God. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now there's there's a picture of Christ in this. That Christ is, it's not it's not only the picture of the nation of Israel, but it's the Messiah King. And the Messiah King is going to come and he is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he's going to do that with power and might. You see, fill this in. God's judgment will separate the true wheat from the chaff. He has a plan on this. And it is a good plan. I want you to see this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 In verse 6, not through 90, verse 6 through 9, somehow I got an extra zero there. But look in the box on the bottom of the page. Here we see an Old Testament, excuse me, a New Testament account, in fact, to to the Corinthian people. And we see that God has a wisdom. This is at the beginning of the letter of Corinthians. And look what it says there. As Paul sets out to deal with them, look at verse 6. Yet among the mature We do impart wisdom. So this is the picture of those who are coming to God, those who are coming to realize who God is. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. See, that's what we just saw in verse 9. That's what we just saw in verse 10. They don't know what's coming. They reject God. They reject his people. But they're going to pass away. Look at verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Here's the hope that we have. 
Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and I love these words, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Can you circle that last line? What God has prepared for those who love him. Church family, the message of Micah is about what God has prepared for those who love him. It's about the fact that he is delivering us with a glorious hope. And we can't even imagine how great it's going to be. We've never seen anything like it. We've never heard anything like it. In fact, we've never even truly even imagined the glory of heaven and the glory of being with him. But he says, arise and thresh. You see, this last one is this. God's true people join God's battle for God's glory. Now his Messiah does this, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are with the Messiah. This is what we do. By faith, we rejoice in the fact that God has a grand plan and we can't even imagine how gloriously wonderful that grand plan is. Okay, you have some homework. Go home, go home and study Genesis, the, Genesis 23, 24, 25. Go look and see what God did with Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And go see how God touched and made lame Jacob, and it was for the purpose of Jacob looking to God. And then consider what God has done in your own life to bring you to Him. And instead of being angry with God, receive His glorious work in your life. Trust Him, and so prove to be His disciples. Would you stand with me for prayer? Lord, I pray that the glorious gospel would be very clear to us. That we would see that you would, did not withhold your judgment, but Lord, you poured out your judgment on Christ so that we can be free. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would recognize that you indeed are the Lord of glory who has come and laid down his life for his own. And that, Lord, that when we experience the troubles of this life, I pray, Father, that you would help us to look to Christ and to see the one who bore our sin, the one who took the judgment of God for us, and that we would rejoice that you had so great a plan amazingly so that the guilty would go free and the righteous would suffer. The one righteous would suffer. Lord, this is a great love that you have for us. This is a great plan that you have for us. I pray that we would receive the gospel of truth and that we would rejoice in that 
we would experience, Lord, all that you have in the good times and in the bad, that we would run to you in faith. Lord, thank you for giving us the great gift of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you sing together? Let's sing of our faith in Christ. It is not we who